The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Uh, let me invite you now to open those scriptures. Let's come together. Uh, we're returning to the Gospel of John, uh, taking a break from Ecclesiastes. In these next two weeks, we're opening up to the Gospel of John. Take your copy of uh, God's Word. If you need one, reach your hand out for the Bible in the pew rack. And we're turning to John 12, specifically at verse 12. It's on page 899 of the New Testament. So please do come with me there as we consider Jesus' triumphal entry. Now, as we prepare to think about that, let me say that the most important life that has ever been lived is that of the Lord Jesus. And the focus of this most important life is one particular week that we call the week of Christ's passion. This one week of Jesus' life is so important that though it's conventionally understood that Jesus lived some 30 to 33 years and His public ministry by which He traveled around and taught lasted three years, this one week of Jesus' life has a disproportionate amount of attention given to it in the Gospel narratives. So for example, this one week of Jesus' life takes up one quarter of the book of Matthew, one third of the book of Mark, one fifth of Luke, and half of the Gospel of John is focused just on this one week that we mark the beginning with the entry into Jerusalem, this so-called triumphal entry and our designation of Palm Sunday. So that's where we are. That's what we'll be considering. If you've got your Bible open, let's pray together and ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures as we hear them together. Heavenly Father, with uh, Your Word open before us, we pray now that Your Spirit would come to illuminate our minds, to give us understanding, would come to bless Your Word to our very hearts and souls, that we who sit under the hearing of Your Word this morning might be those who are also transformed by Your Word. And so, Father, come and bless to us reading and hearing the reception of the Scriptures that we might be those who grow in Christ. Come now, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear the Word of God from John 12. At verse 12, we're going to be reading through verse 36. So beyond just the triumphal entry, John 12 at verse 12. This is the Word of God. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. The crowd that had been with Him when He called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised Him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet Him was that they had heard He had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after Him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, angels have spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God abides forever. So may he write eternal truth upon our hearts. Do keep your Bible open as we see Jesus here in this text. Now, this so-called week of Jesus' passion includes, as we know, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the cleansing of the temple, His final words of instruction to the disciples in the upper room where they would share the Passover meal that Jesus reinterprets as the Lord's Supper, where later Jesus would be arrested, falsely tried, unjustly executed, buried, and then rise in glorious resurrection in the space of one week. One week to change the course of history, not just of all humanity, but of not just this world, but of the entire cosmos the entire created order. This week that begins here is ground zero of salvation history. Now what's very unique about the way John tells the story of the triumphal entry is that it is less focused on the details themselves in terms of where Jesus got the donkey, the disciples He sent out that got the donkey, etc., and more focused on what this event means as Jesus enters the city. He is less focused on the details and more focused on what the big picture signifies. And what is very unique about John's Gospel is that along the way, John will include these editorial comments to give understanding and direction to anyone who would read. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever done this, but sometimes movies will oftentimes give you the ability to access special features that let the director narrate the movie to you as you watch the movie, and you think, who in the world would ever watch a movie to watch the director's comments about the movie? Well, I've only done it to one movie, and it's my favorite movie, one of my favorite movies, Braveheart. 
And along the way, the director narrates the decisions that he makes, narrates what's going on and why, so that as you watch the movie, you begin to appreciate some of the angles and decisions as the story is told. The Gospel of John reads like a director's commentary on the narrative to say, did you catch this? Did you catch that? Do you see this? And adding some timeline details so that even as the events are unfolding, the bigger picture of the meaning of the events are explained in these little parenthetical citations from John. And this gospel account is the only one. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not give the detail that we find in verses 20 to 26 about a group of Greeks that approach the disciples with a question that's really a statement, not so much a demand, but more of a desire. In verse 21, this group of Greeks. Now, there's some uh, misunderstanding about who these Greeks are, whether they're just kind of uh, foreigners, uh, alien to the Jewish uh, world and have come in just to visit, or whether or not they are Roman citizens that live in the area. Uh, but it's more likely the case that these Greeks that John speak of that want to approach Jesus are likely Gentile converts to the Jewish faith. And we find this detail in verse 20 that these Greeks have come up to worship. They have come to Jerusalem to worship, but because they're Gentiles, their access to the celebration of Jewish worship would have been very limited. They could come to the temple, but they could only come to the very outer courts called the courts of the Gentiles, and they would not be allowed inside the inner courts of the temple because they weren't Jewish. And as they are coming to Jerusalem, as they're used to experiencing these things, they hear about Jesus and they want an audience with him. They want to know him. They want to talk to him. They want to ask about them. So they say to the disciples, they approach Philip in verse 21, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, uh, oftentimes in some churches, uh, pastors will put that inscribed into their pulpits. I've always loved that idea. Uh, we wish to see Jesus. Well, anyway, they approach Philip with this question. Philip turns around and asks Andrew. Andrew and Philip go together to Jesus, essentially saying, these people want to talk to you. We wish to see Jesus. Well, that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to see Jesus but I want us to see him in some unique and challenging ways. I want us to see him in three ways. I want us to see Jesus as tenacious. The tenacity of Jesus in this text. I also want us to see Jesus troubled. That comes out in the text. Secondly, troubled. And also thirdly, triumphant. Three points, nice and Trinitarian, alliterated together for sake of remembrance, tenacious, troubled, triumphant. I want us to see Jesus together. And John wants you to see Jesus. And he wants you to make up your mind about him. So let's see him, first of all, tenacious. Jesus is tenacious here in this text. And by that, we should mean resolute, intent to accomplish his task meaning he is determined. Look what he says in verse 24. 
Verse 24, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 23, sorry, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus says, the hour has come. Now, if you were to go and read some of the other gospel narratives, which I, I hope you do, I hope you read your Bibles, I hope you especially read the Gospels, you will find Jesus oftentimes making statements that are a little bit puzzling that relate to this. He will often say things like, the hour has not yet come. My time is not now. He will do something miraculous. And then especially in Mark's Gospel, tell people, don't say a word about this. Don't tell anybody about what you've seen. Don't tell anybody about what you've heard because the hour has not yet come. There were things that throughout Jesus' earthly ministry he was not prepared to do because the timing was not right. But now, now the hour has come. The things that Jesus has come into the world to most especially do are coming true right now. There is this sense in which the true glory of the Son of Man is about to be displayed. This emphasis of the time is now also comes out in verse 31. Jesus makes reference of things that are happening now. All of the miracles, all of the signs and wonders, they were just a prelude to what he says in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. And now will the ruler of this world be cast out. No more waiting, no more anticipating, no more wondering about what Jesus is doing in the world. Jesus is saying, it's time now for me to accomplish for what I have come into the world to do, to accomplish my purpose. He says again in verse 32, when I am lifted up, because I have come to be lifted up, he's referring to the cross, Jesus knows what He has come into the world to do. He's referring to being lifted up on the cross. But when He says being lifted up, He is also making reference not just to His death upon the cross, but also His being lifted up of resurrection. His lifted up of ascending back up into heaven to sit at the Father's right hand in glory. But the point here, Jesus is saying, is now is the time. The hour is prepared. It's happening now. I want you to see how resolute He is. It's now Jesus is determined. He's come to fulfill his role of the servant. By entering Jerusalem in this particular way, he has, to use a historical reference, crossed the Rubicon. There's no turning back. The die is cast. Now is the time. So he says, again, verse 27, for this purpose I have come. Eternal destinies are going to be worked out here. Jesus has come to die, come to cast out Satan, and draw the world to himself. And he's tenacious in it. See it clearly. But don't just see his tenacity. I want you to see something else that is oftentimes very difficult to think about. Don't just see his tenacity. See, secondly, I want you to see Jesus troubled. It comes out in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. You should look at that again and read it again in your mind. What an amazing statement from the Lord Jesus. The Son of God. Now is my soul troubled. 
That might seem like a strange thing for Jesus to say. Especially because in just a few chapters, He's going to say in the upper room, let not your hearts be troubled. And here is Jesus acknowledging the trouble in His own heart, the trouble in His own soul. He says in John 14, 1-2, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. That's where He goes on to say, in My Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I've told you to go and prepare a place for you. I will go and come again so that where I am you might also be. Don't be troubled. Believe. And yet, here is Jesus troubled. Now that may be hard to reconcile. It may be hard for us to to have a picture of a Savior who can be troubled in his own heart. But let me say, first of all, that what we have here is an insight into the real humanity of Jesus. Jesus was a real human. A real human being. The Shorter Catechism says, with a true body and a reasonable soul. A real human soul. You have a soul. Jesus, in His humanity, has a true human soul in His innermost core of His being, His personality as the incarnate Lord. And in that soul, He is troubled. Let me ask, do you know what it's like to be troubled in your soul? Like deep within your gut, troubled, distressed, anxious, fearful. Now there are some people who, when they approach Jesus... They want to deny His divinity. They say, Jesus is not God, and so therefore, I don't need to worship Him. I cast Him to the side to do something else. They say, Jesus is not God. But there are also those who are well-intended, professing the name of Jesus, who actually deny the fact that He's really a human because they just can't wrap their mind around the fact that He could really, truly be like me, a human being with my flesh and a soul like mine. Yes, He has a real, true humanity. And in his true humanity, he experiences the experiences of life in this fallen world, including that of being troubled. Jesus experiences the full range of human emotions. He is, after all, as the prophet Isaiah said about him, a man of sorrows. You will read all of the Gospels and never find an indication of Jesus laughing. That doesn't mean that he didn't laugh. It just means that the emphasis of his personality as a human being was reflective of his mission to be the sin-bearing Savior, bearing our sorrows and experiencing in his very soul trouble. The Greek word here that is used for trouble could also mean revulsion, horror, anxiety, agitation. And the particular way the word comes out means that this is not just an emotion that has suddenly come upon Jesus, but rather something that he has been bearing on his very soul for a long time. So we find him here now, sorrowful, troubled. I don't know, I don't know if you think about that as much as uh, we should. A Savior who is troubled. I think if we thought about that more, we would be more inclined to go to the Savior with our troubles, acknowledging that He knows what it is like. 
The reason why he's troubled, of course, is because the events as they are unfolding before him lay clear in his mind, his mission and his purpose. His heart is troubled. What we have here in John 12 is a foretaste of his experience in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus sweats drops of blood in anticipation of not physical death itself, though that is horrific. The trouble in Jesus' soul, what causes him to sweat drops of blood later on in this week is the reality that Jesus will experience the unmitigated force of the wrath of God against sin. And he will be cut off and punished. That he will assume upon himself the penalties of sin and bear the weight of the curse of sin upon him. You remember how in the garden he prays, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And this is the struggle. This is the struggle. So let's distinguish then between when Jesus says in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled and the trouble that Jesus experiences here. There is a difference between the trouble of unbelief that Jesus is talking about in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled, meaning don't disbelieve, but believe that kind of trouble, and then the trouble that Jesus experiences here that comes in the face of uncertainty, the trouble that comes from anxiousness, the trouble that comes from the sorrow of what lies before him, seeing that he is going into Jerusalem to die and being troubled by it. But don't for a second assume that Jesus sins by being troubled in his heart. Perish the thought of a Savior that sins. He is sinless in and of Himself. Never for a moment did He sin. Never for a moment did Jesus flinch. Never for a moment did Jesus falter. Never for one second did Jesus misstep from the path of His obedience, leading Him directly to the cross. And yet, He can still be troubled. The trouble and fear of being abandoned. Look again at verse 27 when He says, Now is my soul troubled and What shall I say? What shall I say? In light of this, what should I do? Let me ask you. Do you understand this? Do you you understand the emotion that I think is wrapped up into this? I don't mean to overly sentimentalize what Jesus is saying here, but have you experienced looking forward in anxiety and fear and uncertainty having trouble in your soul and saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't know which way I should go. And I think we can identify here. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is in His very soul troubled and shaken for you and for me. And I think that especially when we face the prospect of death or the death of a loved one's and we think, what am I going to do now? Where do I go? Dear friends, will you look at Jesus here and see that this is the very beginning of His love for you? That He is willing to face with resolute obedience that which troubles Him for you. That He is willing to proceed upon the path that the Father has laid out for Him to enter into the darkness of judgment, to enter into the drinking of the cup of wrath and the uncertainty and the unknown for your sake. 
See him there. And be filled with love for the Savior who is troubled. See his tenacity. See that he's troubled. But then thirdly, which oftentimes is the main point of Palm Sunday, let's see Jesus triumphant. Not only tenacious, not only troubled, but triumphant. Because that's what the entry into the Jerusalem is all about. Riding on the donkey, symbolizing, communicating to the people. I embrace the prophetic imagery that the Messiah is riding into Jerusalem. And normally, the, the way it would work is uh, pilgrim travelers would come from all around to visit the city and its preparation for Passover. People would uh, be walking into the city from miles around, singing the Psalms of Ascent, especially Psalm 118, which has these very words from the hallelujahs, the hosanna, Lord save us. They would be uh, recognizing what Jesus is doing as he fulfills this prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Fear not. Behold, your king is coming to you. The people get it. The people see what Jesus is doing and they embrace him and celebrate him, taking palm branches, placing their cloaks on the street before him, crying out with the children, Save us, Lord. Cry of celebration, a cry of hope, help in the face of a promised deliverer. But just appreciate the contrast here. If you think about what it would look like for a triumphant king to ride into a city with victory. You don't picture a donkey, right? You picture the great gold-shielded military war horse and chariot carrying in the king to do battle and vanquish all of his foes. Like That's what you think it should be, right? The conquering king. And yet, that's exactly the point. The contrast that Jesus is not that kind of king. His kingdom is not that kind of kingdom. Here he is on the colt full of a donkey is the kingdom of peace bringing in a kingdom that is not fundamentally political but spiritual. Coming as the seed that must be cast to the ground using that agrarian metaphor to say I've got to go into the ground in order to bear fruit. Coming as the sin bearer, coming as the servant of the Lord to be obedient to the will of God, even to the point of death. And so when he says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. The triumph not only of his crucifixion, but ultimately the triumph of his resurrection. And this triumphal entry is the anticipatory foretaste of the celebration that will belong to Jesus on the day when he will draw all men to himself who see with the eyes of faith the truth of his kingdom, the truth of his gospel. That's why we need to look at Jesus. That's why we need to see Jesus. That's why in the year 2021, you and I still need to say with those attending Greek folks, Lord, we want to see Jesus. We want to see him. Quick glances are not enough. You need to sit quietly and ponder the mysteries of Jesus' love for you. You say, I'm busy. We're all busy. Jesus is worth a few silent moments of your heartfelt meditation. Why should he love me so? Why should he enter into the curse of death that belongs to me? Jesus is worth that from you. Now, 
Let's appreciate here in verse 16, the disciples didn't get this, right? There's one of these editorial comments in John, verse 16. His disciples didn't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered. Meaning, when he was raised and when he was ascended, they looked back and said, oh, that's what that meant. There were people in the crowd who didn't understand it. There were people in the crowd who were just looking for another miracle, trying to follow up on what he did in John chapter 11 when he raised Lazarus from the grave. And maybe a bunch of people were following, thinking, I have loved ones that have died too. Maybe he'll raise my loved one. There were fickle people in the crowd who were saying, Hosanna now, but we'll say crucify him in just a few days. There were Pharisees in the crowd in verse 19 who scornfully hated Jesus because he was drawing people away from their false teaching along with the Greeks, along with those who were claiming him as a political Messiah, saying, save us from the Romans. What I ultimately want is political deliverance. And to all those people, to all those crowds, with their mixed understanding, Jesus speaks the same word. Whoever you are, whatever your disposition in life, whatever your questions, whatever your struggles, whatever your misapprehensions or misappropriations of the Christian faith, Jesus says, look at me. Look at me. And this Jesus is the Messiah that we need Him to be, not just the Messiah we want Him to be, which is why being convinced of our greatest need, we will look for the remedy to satisfy it. So we'll just finish with this thought for a moment. Let me ask you, what are you convinced is your greatest need? What are you convinced is your greatest and deepest need? Because whatever you identify that to be, you will identify its remedy as your Savior. Your greatest need, you might think, is financial, so you'll idolize money. Your greatest need is social advancement, advancement in society, advancement in your job. You'll idolize your progress. You think what I really need is more information. You'll idolize that and your own wisdom. But because our greatest need is our alienation from God because of our sin, God has sent a Savior. Are you convinced that that's your greatest need? And are you convinced that by seeing Jesus, He will not only remove your alienation from God, remove all of your sins, but embrace you into that kingdom of peace that He speaks of here and now? So He says, verse 36, while you have the light, believe, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light, that we might be the children of God. Let us pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for how they reveal your dear son to us. We praise you that you have sent your very son to us sinners, Lord Though being 2,000 years removed, we are not removed from the same need as the citizens of Jerusalem. And so, Lord, as Christ triumphantly proceeds into our lives, help us to receive Him by faith. To look upon His sacrifice, not with scorn, but with loving appreciation, loving gratitude, and the humblest hearts to receive Him as Savior. 
So, Father, may that be true of us and for every heart, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.